Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. This edition is sponsored by the Tricord Group, leading successful relationship constructs for over 25 years, and Vim, helping the architecture and design disciplines design, deliver, and operate better buildings for a better world. Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Well, it is great to have my friends Blaine Wishart, Tyler Goss back with me in the studio as we talk about all things technology and what's going on in the future of the built environment. Blaine Wishart has extensive software design management and development experience in diverse industries, including financial, medical, insurance, shipping, software development, AEC, publishing, aerospace, and manufacturing. He's a guru, folks. Tyler Goss is a thoughtful and strategic leader focused on catalyzing change in the built environment industry through the leverage of novel technologies, business models, process improvements, and policy reform. His expertise has been honed through engagements with leading organizations, including Walt Disney Imagineering, Turner Construction, and Case. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Anxious to join you both. Some interesting things going on in the world. We've been in this COVID period for about a year and a half now. Extraordinary. We're not finished with it. We're going to continue to live in this context for for an unforeseeable future. We seem to start, we're starting to get used to it in a strange way. But I think that it certainly has exposed a lot about who we are as humans, how we interact with one another, the things that we desperately desire in our lives as a result of isolation. We're learning new ways and means of working together, of communicating and relating to one another. I'm just very interested to hear from the two of you your observations on the explosive changes in technology, either the introduction of new technology or the finally the catch-up of existing technologies that seem to have found relevance in this period of time. Maybe we should start with that. What are your observations around what's happening with technology at this point? Well, there's a lot happening the way I see it. The first big category I've seen since we last talked is changes to to the science and technology of science and technology. The key thing there for me has been the incredible role that the pre-publication sites played in the pandemic. That allowed a level of collaboration internationally uh, around science and the development of vaccines that was historically unprecedented. So that's how to say it. That it's a different way of doing science, and it gained legitimacy and had a giant impact. For instance, the virus was sequenced within weeks worldwide after um, and, and published worldwide because of these pre-publication sites. Associated with that is that rights law has come to dominate all of technology, although it's not always effectively used. By rights law, we're talking about the lowering of cost based as a function of the number of units produced, not as a function of time. So Moore's law talking about how the number of transistors on a ship increased, uh, but, you know, doubled every 18 months or so. The, 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 the key thing there is time. But Wright's talking about how many units you produce. One of the things that's important about that is that it, it explains why communication, for instance, 
has proceeded so much more rapidly than Moore's law would, would predict. It also gives clues as to how to accelerate things you really care about. Another area that I think has changed a lot is the technology of governance. And here the key thing is crypto. How to say it, it, it fits that, that pattern of not being fully implemented yet, but we can see something of the future, although it might look a lot different than some of the crypto people think it's going to look. But it's a change in the way uh, projects are gov- can be governed, the way finance can be governed, and the way cities and localities can be governed. The technology of biology had this giant shift as well with the development of the mRNA vaccines. Again, it's, it's science that was unfolding, science that became uh, materialized in a way that was really useful because of massive in- investment to create a market for it. But it it's, was, um, how to say it, startled everybody, virtually everybody in the field was astounded by how effective those vaccines were. And finally, I'm seeing some changes in the way compute happens that are probably under most people's radar, but I think they're pretty profound. Think about Facebook, as evil as I think it is. They have a way to connect the desktops and the phones of a billion people to the desktops and phones of another billion people. The timeline that somebody in India sees is a function of things happening in Nairobi and New York City and London and so forth. Now, it's incomplete in this sense. We can't interoperate from LinkedIn or from Twitter or from Signal with Facebook. But technically, it's really quite possible to do. And this demand for interoperability of various walled gardens now is gaining pressure and it's technically quite possible. So I guess that's a brief summary. But the the other side of that is that we've gained the ability to apply compiler technology to rolling out sophisticated applications, databases, servers, and user interfaces in such a way that one can now specify the interactivity one wants on a web page. And that web page doesn't ever really exist. It operates much more like the machine code does at runtime as it's being optimized and re-optimized. And actually the code is, you know, in modern compilers is rewritten as it's executing, depending on, on how the flow of, of data is. And the same kind of thing is happening at the web page level as the specification for a page is pushed off from the server to a client and across a CDN. Extraordinary. It's just extraordinary, these changes and the accelerations that have occurred in this space. I love your example about Facebook and about their way to interoperate, interconnect across such a massive population of the world by applying solid fundamentals of computer science in an advanced context. That's what they're doing at the end of the day. I think what Blaine's describing is really an interesting, like if you want to frame it sort of like thematically, there's an interesting tipping point here, right? There's there's a lot in what you're describing in terms of, of how the on the digital experience is being formed and being 
personalized and customized for every single person. Um, there's a lot that's good in that. Uh, there's also, as we can see, a lot that's bad. We've seen over the last four years a lot that's bad in that, right? It's you know, it atomizes, further atomizes everyone and removes them from each other. And I think you know, one of the things that we obviously have seen as a cultural trend is increased atomization, increased loneliness, right? Incle- increased uh, uh, there's disconnection from other human beings. Uh, just forcibly because of what we had to do in order to resist this virus. And I, I wonder if uh, the technologies that are sort of facilitating that, that further immunization, I wonder if they're, the tenor of them right now is, is not, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. Now, there are certainly a lot of things that have, that have advanced uh, and have been great at, at reviving social connection and and, you know, you know, like, obviously, we've gotten very accustomed to Zoom. We've gotten very accustomed to video conferencing, teleconferencing, the making connection in a way uh, through, through mediated systems that keeps us connected to other human beings. But, of course, there's also the, the problem of resilience and redundancy that we saw when Facebook went down a couple of weeks ago, right? The, an entire... Pretty much the the entire communication network of of you know the the global south, uh, which mostly happens on WhatsApp, all went down. And you 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 so you're running a really critical piece of human civilization through a single non essentially non redundant system, right? And I know Facebook has redundancies and failovers and all that, you know, because they have to. But when a single there was a single point of failure that happened in that in that crash and that points out that this, this these technologies have become so integral to our lives that it's scary that it can be you know it can be taken offline by accident like that mark zuckerberg to decide tomorrow to change his business model and take the you know take the human connection out of his software right because essentially you know because of the way that he could ownership and control of facebook is you know he can he is in charge and controls a vital piece of infrastructure. Same with Twitter. Same with all the other things. And I don't like. I don't want to be just negative. Um, I think I think there's a lot of, of net positive here, and you know. But I want to make sure that we, as we are racing headlong into a wildly interesting time in computation, uh, and wildly interesting time in finance as well with with uh, with crypto, that we we want to make. I want to make sure that we're that we're making human decisions rather than capital decisions as, as making them as well as we make the capital decisions. Yeah. Well, I, I have the same fears that Tyler has. I, I do think that the implicit in talking about the need for Facebook and other services to interoperate is I move towards resilience because Tyler's point about the way it stripped the global South out of communications, not just because of WhatsApp, but because of Facebook itself in major parts of the world are the only way people get online. The other side of that, of course, is that it's not reasonable that we have such centralization of ownership. And I mean, it's obvious that that uh, WhatsApp and, and Instagram should be decoupled from Facebook. I'd, I'd like to touch quickly on this thing of the built environment and if is there progress being made there? I have a different view slightly. I'm struck by what's happening inside of Ford Motor they are beginning to see their electrical vehicles as a built environment in which people inhabit. And I think that that, how to say it, that's connected to part of the logjam I see in AEC. And that goes like this. Five years ago, a car company made cars, tried to sell them 
they'd last for a few years, then they'd sell you another one. The marketing department had some relationship to the customer, but the product designers didn't during that period between car purchases. As Ford has gone to electric vehicles and kind of bet the company on it, they started to realize that from a design standpoint, they have to have a daily touch with their users. In this sense, they're like the, the designers of any website that is concerned about the day, minute by minute interaction of the consumer, the user with that product. I think that this idea that the, the designers and the people who do the actual construction need to have a life cycle relationship to the product has relevance in AEC. As I see it, I don't see that we can get the kind of research that leads to better hospitals, better senior living facilities can come about if there isn't that long period of touch point on behalf of somebody with design control. And I, I don't know what that means from an ownership standpoint of the corporate structure in, in terms of uh, people who build buildings and hospitals, but I think that's what's missing. And I think that what Ford is finding is that this transition from having a, a sale every two years or every six years to having daily contact has completely changed their acceptance by their, their users. That is, they're, they're getting very, very high ratings now. Over the last year, their stock doubled in price because they have such a, a different level of consumer involvement. And I think we'll have to do the same thing in our buildings if we want to make use of the technical possibilities and, and get some kind of takeoff. It really is entering into a relationship versus a transaction, isn't it? And a conversation between the user, the product, the manufacturer, all three of them are part of that dialogue because we know that the product itself has things to say and has things to listen to. I find far too often in these conversations that they are series of monologues as opposed to authentic dialogues. And I think that this, what you're talking about is exactly what Ford has recognized is there, there is a, a relational dialogue going on between them, their product, and their consumers. Very exciting. Can you imagine the data troll from all of that? Oh, my gosh. Very exciting. Security continues to be a primary concern across myriad dimensions of society and, and industry. Water systems are under attack. Uh, electrical grids and fuel distribution systems have been hijacked, both for just disruption and monetary ransom. Built environment professionals still seem functionally obtuse to the level of threat and open vulnerabilities that seem resident within their spheres of influence and work. A few years ago, we convened a Design Futures Council event, a gathering around this theme. The audience, though, seemed unmoved by the deeply disturbing, yet the open landscape of cybersecurity, what it offers almost endless opportunities to this industry. I want to know from both of you, do you feel cybersecurity is a primary priority to be addressed by the architecture and engineering communities? I mean, it has to be, right? You're a building, a building like you can say a hospital or a theme park or a hotel is the physical manifestation of someone's business. It's therefore an easy target because it's you can see it, you know where it is. 
it's it has to be open to the public to a certain extent. It has systems have to be open to the public to a certain extent because of the way it interacts with people and interoperates with them in both the digital and physical space uh, and with the users uh, and, and customers. It's not a core competency of these organizations to think about ransomware as it relates to the building. I was just Googling for this because I because I remember hearing about uh, there's just been a, a raft there's been a, a number of ransomware attacks that have hit hospitals uh, and cities obviously in the last few years and actually th- there was a uh, you know, Spring Hill Medical Center in uh, Alabama uh, was in the middle of a ransomware attack that took down computer equipment that caused staff to miss warning signs uh, and you know, and ended up uh, you know with the death of a, of a child uh, as a result. It is a huge, huge issue, and we are not paying nearly enough attention to it. And, you know, the question, I think the question is always going to be, can you keep up? Can an end user can or a, a building operator keep up with the level at which ransomware and attacks innovate themselves? Right? How, how would they mutate? Think about the Internet of Things, which was obviously implicated huge in the Facebook uh, crash as well. But the Internet of Things where you have cameras and devices and, and you know, they are devices and products that are sold and then... You know, who maintains the firmware updates? Who patches all the security holes? What if the company goes out of business and there's no longer patching security holes? You can, you know, get in, can you get in to a hospital through its air conditioner? Because that air conditioner is no longer being, uh, having security updates from its manufacturer or from the the company, the hospital. Is, the question I would have though, for both of you is, who is ultimately responsible for hardening those systems? Is it the responsibility of the manufacturer is the responsibility of the designer for picking correct systems that we know are going to be hardened to the certain extent that they can and fighting for those dur- during value engineering? Uh, is the responsibility of the building owner? Is it the responsibility of the builder? Uh, these are like this is one where there are clear implications and clear dangers, but no real clear ownership of the solution. Uh, Blaine, I want to hear your response. Who owns this responsibility? Part of what I'm trying to suggest is that we need to find responsible entities for the life cycle of a building. And so I don't think any of us can answer that yet, but I think the, how to say it, some combination of the government and the building owner have responsibility. I do think that we see here an intersection with other technology that offers us a path forward that is sensible. These major buildings need to be resilient in the sense they can operate when the rest of the grid goes down. Ten years ago, that sounded crazy. The, the change in the cost of renewables, the development of the sophisticated battery technology, and we have the possibility of designing buildings so they're intended to be closed off, or that they can be closed off. Kind of like a submarine is designed to go underwater and stay there without communication with anybody. I think if we look at what happened in Texas last winter, or maybe it was in the spring, with the horrible flooding, we see that this is a very clear and present danger apart from malicious activity. Our current stance that there's not going to be major malicious activity to bring down systems on which life depends is just hopelessly naive. It's going to happen. So, so then I think maybe an easy way to think of it is, you know, Amazon has this line of hard work they call snow. The snow devices, some of them are as big as trucks. Uh, that is, that, that they have literally thousands of servers in them. 
Some of them, of them are the size of a briefcase. But the, the key thing they have is that inside, all of the AWS APIs are supported. That means you can have a system designed on the cloud, put it in a suitcase or put it in a truck and take it to a site. And you, you have, once you give it power, you have an isolated network. Now, the, clearly there's a lot more, but it, I think that when you combine snow level technology with battery technology, with local grid-based power sources, we can see the physical foundation of resilience. There's a lot left to be done, but I think that is something of a path out. I do think that the, the thing that, that where I don't see a path out is, I believe, at least in the major countries, certainly the United States and China, in both cases, our internet is based on telecommunication infrastructure that is too highly centralized and isn't designed for resilience. I think we need to go back to the original concept of the internet as being a, a network of networks. And these days, they could have independent power. They can close themselves off from the rest of the world. And that's what we need. And that, the purpose was, of course, that you could keep operating in the presence of a nuclear war. And I think that's the design standard that some combination of owners and government need to come to. And there's an interesting theme developing here, right? Which is these attacks are becoming more common, more frequent. Just like uh, our, you know, the SARS and and COVID and these these these, uh, you know, communicable viruses are, are becoming more going to be more part of our lives for the next you know next next century. You know, there there's and obviously we've been able to head off COVID to some extent uh, by developing vaccines that can rapidly respond to mutation that's happening constantly in the uh, uh, in the vaccine. You know, as as it enters the human biomass. Is it say the same thing has to happen in the you know in sort of our digital? Uh, it's not biomass, but then you have this sort of the digital infrastructure, which is there has to be some breakthrough that allows that flips that turns the tables between those who would be exploiting would be injecting viruses and and uh, and, and other uh, malacting you know the, uh, software and code into that system. And those who would try to prevent that. Right now, I think that just because if we want to think about it really, really broadly, this is the same problem that exists in our sort of building standards of how we build buildings so that they're impervious, so that there's they're impervious to water or to structural failure from earthquakes and so forth. The 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 interesting thing that's different about the built environment and why I think our industry is so ill-prepared for handling a dynamic threat like, you know, uh, ransomware and, and digital terrorism is that, you know, we design hospitals already to be hardened to, you know, the one, you know, they, they're typically designed to a higher spec than a, than a home because they need to be operating after an earthquake or operating after a tornado or a hurricane. Um, and we do the same thing for other buildings that we deem to be good community needs during those, those times. But the rules of physics don't really change, right? Or they change very slowly so you can react to them. You know, that's, you know, and, and yes, we are seeing increasing more powerful storms, uh, but the building codes are reacting to that and they're, and they're, and they're moving at a pace that will probably make things better. But the rules of, uh, there isn't like, there aren't any hard and fast rules of statics or structure that you can look at and build your code and your, and your guidelines to uh, when it comes to digital, you know, attacks that, you know, and I think maybe we just don't have the 
training or the experience or the expertise inside the industry to fend off those things today. I love talking to you guys. It's been too long. I love your perspectives. I love your articulation. Thanks again. Take care. Okay, bye, guys. What you've just heard is a conversation that I've had with Tyler Goss and Blaine Wishart. It is being punctuated with a comma. You can tell we have got much more to discuss. So I hope you'll look forward to the following sessions. Until next time, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of This is Design Intelligence. Sponsored by the Tricord Group and Vim. The producer for This Is Design Intelligence is Laura Spells. Sound engineering by Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.